0: This show is part of the Stuff Podcast Network. Hey guys, and welcome to Personality Bingo with me, your host, Tom Moore. So this week on the podcast, we hit the incredible Resby he is he's so many things he's a musician he's a podcaster he has a charity the lust for life charity he hosts marathons he's done everything and he's an absolute gentleman it was so good to have brezi on the podcast brezi if you're listening thank you so much I want to point you towards his podcast that's the where is my mind podcast I know they're going on tour very soon with that also his amazing bland band the Blizzards, is where I met uh, first came in contact with brezi and he's really been uh, present in uh, Irish society ever since it was so good to have this chat and thank you so much for doing it guys we're coming towards the end of personality bingo season 2 so if you are enjoying make sure to spread the word that's it for now please enjoy the amazing brezzy playing personality bingo it you ready to play personality bingo?
1: Mm-hmm, I sure am.
0: <laughs> Loving the enthusiasm. Okay, so I'll give a quick explainer of how it all works. So we've got uh, 60 balls in here. I've got 60 minutes on the clock, and I've got 60 corresponding questions. I've also given you a sheet of paper with five numbers on it. Would you do me a favor and read out the five?
1: The five numbers are 5, 19, 46, 30, and 17.
0: Nice one. Would you do me another favor? Would you add a sixth number to that list, something that's not already there that's between 1 and 60?
1: I will of course
0: It's 23 23 Any reason?
1: None Okay Literally none I don't know I, I think it's quite a quite an attractive looking number now when you write it down it looks quite balanced and nice piece of equilibrium between the two and the three
0: (laughs) yeah it does it's got some nice curves it
1: satisfies my weirdness
0: okay beautiful i love it um so i should say that if all six of those numbers do come out which has never happened in you know 140 odd episodes that means the tables are turned and you can ask me any question in the whole wide world i'll give you a totally honest answer and i should also say we do have number 69 in here because i'm a child and if that comes out then i have a special. Bresi question on this piece of paper that I've okay. hand sculpted for you sounds good alright let's give the first number a spin oh my god our bingo machine is stage Good. there we go alright first number out we've got number 58 do you have it?
1: 58 is not on that list
0: ok no worries number uh, 58 ok we're right in there number 58 the question is how do you get in your own way? how
1: do I get in my own way? I I I suppose the best way I get my own way is not a good thing, but I I over intellectualize things Mm. and I get really up in my head about them rather than getting into my heart about them and feeling them, I start to rationalize them. Mm. And when you do that, you kind of generally you're you're not going off feeling. You're going off, you're trying to go off logic and rationale. And sometimes logic and rationale is not what you should go off. Yeah. So, yeah, I do think sometimes I I take emotional subjects and I intellectualize them rather than feel them. Mm.
0: And do you like because that's a really gorgeous phrase of like not going from your heart like do you have a way where you try and move from your head to your heart
1: i you have to learn to do that i think for years i kind of did the opposite i didn't want to do that because like feeling is terrifying sometimes you mm. know what i mean we always say i'd rather feel nothing than feel everything mm. but i actually don't agree with that i think actually that's where the work gets done mm. is between that the, the head and the, i sound like a shit. 80s power ballad, but it genuinely is th- th- it's the bridge between the head and the heart is that's where you should be living. I think a lot of us live up in our heads, the cerebral kind of space where we we go, I should do that. But I, you know, and, and these are the reasons rather an a- example of that is when I take on a challenge, what I do now and I've learned to do this is I start at the end and work backwards, mm. whereas what I used to do, I started what it would feel like to do it and then I work backwards where some people go I'm going to do a challenge and they will see all the obstacles that are in their way first and they go well I probably shouldn't do this because this isn't the way and I can't do this so what I do now is go right right to the end and you don't see any obstacles and then you then you, <laughs> you work backwards and you f- you see them but that's to me and that's not always the right thing to do but I tend to do that more, more often than not now
2: mm.
0: that's really interesting w- w- d- how did you come to that?
1: I don't think you come to it I actually but I came to the to years and years of of psychological intervention and therapy where i even my therapist was like you're intellectualizing this mm. you're you're giving me the answer you think i want to hear and that was just a safe place for me to do it and mm. i felt safe to do that and i felt like i was used to doing it and then i then he kind of guided me to more to more the feeling part and that's when everything changes
0: and so you know with all the study the podcast everything that you've done in that like kind of space but a lot of that like it, it is it's very vulnerable and all that but like particularly when you're studying like that is a lot of head hmm. does that do, like is is the do, do you feel like that puts blocks in the way because like you understand it all or are you trying to work out do you know what I mean there's a lot of high yeah. maths.
1: no I, I think there is I think a lot of what I do now is I look at culture, I look at what's making us feel the way we feel about ourselves, not necessarily the individual anymore, the psychology of the individual. I'm thinking of the psychology of culture mm. and what it does. And there's a really interesting essay that I read called The Privatization of Stress by Mark Fisher. And he's the kind of is the idea of saying, well, if you look at the economic models that we live by, like the neoliberal models, they, they make us unwell. And then we get like wellness people telling us that literally all we have to do is do this, this and this, and we kind of airbrush out the reality of how difficult it can be at the moment and how chaotic the world is. So I think that's what I what, I, what I'm kind of studying is more the sociology, the cultural elements of what can make us feel like w- we don't deserve better. Mm. And I think that is what I'm really interested in. say so my partner, Louise, is a psychologist. She's very much focused on the individual. I'm very much focused on what what surrounds the individual. And, mm. and the structures of support that we have or we don't have. And like you look in Dublin, for example, and it's, it becomes very easy for, you know, you know somebody who might be on a, a zero hour contract, really unstable working conditions, not sure when they're going to work from one end of the week to the next. And then Dublin rental prices that require you to sell vital organs and all the other stuff that comes with it, And then, you know, you hear things like eviction bans and you start it. It gets in on anyone. And then you have someone go, you should just drink more water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, that's what I'm talking about. It's mm. just the idea of how we create structures and better supports and better economic models mm. where things like deep inequality and equity don't exist. And I don't mean my my actual degree, initial degree was in economics. I, I know how countries work mm. and I know how they function. But neoliberalism doesn't work. It's never worked. It's never going to work. Yet we continue to do it. Mm. And it's that stuff. And it's the idea they call a capitalism, capitalist realism. Which means that this idea that there's no alternative to capitalism. No, I'm not a socialist. But there has to be an alternative to neoliberalism. That's that's kind of what I'm quite interested in.
0: Mm. Neoliberalism is Mm. is one of those words. I've heard loads and I'm not completely sure I understand it. Like, what's your understanding? of it? It's the
1: idea that you leave the marketplace to its own devices. The marketplace will solve everything. Mm. And that's just nonsense like it's not going to solve everything. That's why you see a housing crisis in in Ireland, because we left it completely to the market. And now we're in a position where when you leave it to markets, there's always going to be corruption there's always going to be power imbalances. There's always going to be that it's a human condition. Mm. So if you're not providing actual levels of every human being. So the one really interesting one is I I met this uh, sociologist in Finland. He's an incredible guy and he. I can't pronounce his name. It's He can't pronounce his name. <laughs> and... Oh, that's, it, it, is it neoliberalism? No, it's not. It's, it, it's... What the fuck is it? I can't... I'll, I'll, I'm going to have to text you because yeah, I can't. Yeah. But he basically said something to me that really hit me around this. And he said, in Finland, they have like a basic universal income. They have... Generally don't have homelessness. Mm. And I said, how... You know, what was that driver behind politics and he says, because the most dangerous person in society is the person with nothing left to lose. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And that's how they view it. So they make sure everybody has their needs met, mm. their Maslow hierarchy, they have their certain elements of needs met and they have them met. And I, I look in Ireland, which is the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest countries in Europe. I also know that economics is an incredibly blunt instrument to judge a, judge a society on. you should judge a society on how it treats its most vulnerable. Mm. So ask yourself, are we doing a good enough job? And the thing about it is the minute you talk about stuff like this, it becomes you get labeled politically or oh, you're this, this and the other. Can you not just not care about people and making sure that people get the access and the needs that they need, whether that's a home, whether that is the right healthcare, all these different things in a country and a population of five million and we can't get it right. Like And the other side of that is it's a real opportunity here for be to be a world leader in these types of things. We're a small market. We have a small population. We can talk to our politicians and we should never lose that. We can, you know, there, th- there isn't the same divide that you would have in America between politicians and people. Mm. And we need to protect that. But also we can change it. That's, the, that's what's so frustrating about it. It can be changed. And Ireland has a huge international reputation and people would look at it and see it. And I'm talking about health systems. I'm not, you know, I, I work and chat a lot with Rory Hearn. You know, when you look at the house in crisis, it's policy driven. Mm. It's policy driven. It's neoliberalism. That's what it is. And I don't think leaving the market to solve all problems is the right thing to do. Mm. I never have. And I, I think there is there is some people call it conscious capitalism, which might be some kind of romantic vision of the world that I might have. But I do believe that, that there's got to be a better way. And also, I, I, I do believe that you know I, th- I think politicians <laughs> generally want it most of them I don't buy into this thing that they're all the big bad wolves all the time mm. I think they get into politics for the right reasons but the system kind of poisons it and makes it a bit toxic and it becomes more about preservation of power rather than looking after the citizens to put you there mm.
0: do, it, do, like what's so funny as well right with your Sort of career or your life, even your like life's work gone from sport to music to sort of this space now. Actually, that was one thing that I was curious. of Like, even when I was recording the intro for this episode, I was like, H- "How do you like to be referred to almost for the work you do in that, like, I don't know, political adjacent, mental health adjacent, whatever that space is? How do you, how do you kind of umbrella that?"
1: Throw as much wall shit at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of my CV. But I don't know. I don't. I've never. I've always had a struggle with anybody being put into a box, I mm. don't like that. I don't like that. about people, I don't like when people do it to me, I don't do it to other people. So you can be you can be two things at the same time. Mm. And I think we have a problem with that sometimes. Like with this kind of zero sum arguments about people. Well, he was an athlete. He can <laughs> he can't possibly be a musician as well. Yeah. It's madness. And I think for me. I fell back into academia because it became very attractive to me again, because I felt there was so much I didn't know and so much I wanted to know and learn. And I also wanted to be You know, I set up a lust for life. It's now in a thousand, over a thousand primary schools. It's developing early intervention, mental health programming for schools. It will be curriculum based, I hope, by 2024 and every primary school by 2024. Then we move secondary school systems. I want to be the best advocate I can be for this. I want to understand all the ins and outs and ups and downs of it. I want to not be a problem admiration society. I don't want to throw stones at a problem. I want to see what can we bring to the table here to actually add. I don't want conflict. And um, I think part of that for me is to go back in and look at the area that I'm most interested in and doing a deep research into it and studying it and dedicating the next, God knows, four or five years of my life to do that. Hmm. Um, because I, you know why more than anything? Because I think we can. I wouldn't do it if I, I think we can build better systems. And part of my studies is actually looking at the last 200 years of intervention from 1817 when we built our first asylum in Ireland and to 1950, when we had the highest level of people in psychiatric institutions in the world, globally, and the running joke was like, oh, maybe Irish people are just have more mental health problems, but they don't. They never did. That wasn't the point. It was just it was the social forces that prevailed in Ireland, like poverty, like famines, like Mm. civil wars, all these different things. And what we did, because Irish people were very, very poor, they used to abuse the legal acts which was called the Dangerous Lunatics Act. That's what it was called, mm. which meant without evidence, you could basically put a family member into an institution and that's where they stayed. And what was happening is with families who, who couldn't afford, maybe Tommy who worked on the farm who wasn't doing much and they're like, well, we can't afford to feed this guy and he's not doing anything. And you'd ring up the guards and say, oh, he tried to, he tried to hit mum and all of a sudden, Tommy's in an institution and he never gets out and we abused that system and it wasn't because these families were bad people it was because they were desperate mm. and the deep poverty and social inequality and all stuff like that so these are things if we're going to talk about mental health we cannot we cannot ignore social forces they're to me such a crucial part of the conversation which is what my study is going to look at what have we done we went from malaria treatment to ECT we had insulin coma therapy then moved into psychopharmacology and throughout all of that you're kind of looking at where's the early intervention programs where's the education programs and obviously in the '50s, '60s in ireland that wasn't on the cards there were so many other issues but now why can't we do that now why can't we develop those models of care and so that's what i'm doing
0: yeah i think that's so true like that thing of and like i know that you're saying that you're kind of looking more societally and like say louise's work looks more individually but i think this is a principle that applies across both is like when you know better you do better or you know that should be like something it's your
1: motivation and it, the other thing is I, I genuinely so we, we, we can talk about our political system here and who's going to be in the government next and I, I absolutely don't believe Sinn Féin have this like who, if they are our next government I don't think they there's nothing in their manifestos around mental health that made me think other ways that they're not thinking pretty much the same that every other government have looked at mm. so we look at our our system—we si- spend six percent of our health budget on mental health. Six percent. The World Health Organization says a minimum of twelve to thirteen percent. Mm. The bigger question that politics needs to ask is what that six percent is actually spent on, and how efficient is it? Mm. What are the treatment models? What are the types of therapeutic supports that we're offering? Are they sustainable? Are we giving? Are we training enough psychologists? Are we getting enough of them into the system? Is you know—is there—is there, is there joined-up thinking between our social systems and our—you know—all these different things? Are we still using Windows 92 in our health systems? You know, these are the realities. And I think to me is in politics. In the next election, you're going to see mental health being a big core part of the manifestos. Mm. And we need to educate ourselves on how to question politicians on what is actually being spent and what is the actual model of care that we're using. Now, the medical model is important, but it cannot be the only show in town. And unfortunately, right now, that tends to be what it is. And we gotta look at other ways, and we gotta look at other support systems and structures, and at the community level. Mm. And we gotta intervene early, and we gotta do it now.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's it's so funny because I don't have I don't have your knowledge or information with this stuff. I have like anecdotal on the ground stuff, and like even just in my community or my friend group, right? I don't know what it is. I think I'd be I'd be very comfortable speaking to. Uh, like just haven't got a lot from therapy. My mom is a therapist. Like it's really like normalised for me, so it's not an issue. So I would say every like I don't know maybe and maybe through this podcast, what well, I'd speak about it and people might listen. And so every now and again there'll be someone who will reach out and be like, listen, I've never gone to therapy. I'm struggling with a thing. Like can can you? How do you do it? Just even like the basics of how do you do it? And it's so funny because like I'll, I'll obviously you know. We'll we'll, we'll link to a website where you can find a therapist near you and that's kind of as much as I know but it's also what's really like a really extreme example happened yesterday and that's why it's on my mind but it was a friend who was in like an actually dark place and like who I was I wasn't like I I asked the question outright like listen Mm. are you like thinking about taking your life you know because that's something that like I remember the first time someone asked me that question when I was in a dark place and it it so took me by surprise because I wasn't in that headspace but there was actually a re- real relief that someone was kind of willing to go there with me and like, if that is what you're mm-hmm. looking to do, it's okay, we'll look after you, I'll be with you and we'll we'll get it sorted. So it's something like, when I get that sense, someone was like, I think it's better to ask that question. But it was, what was kind of distressing was the notion of kind of like, you know, he's a pal and met him and went for a walk and tried to, even just over the phone be like just take a few breaths with me, and we'll just get into the body a little bit more and again I have no real knowledge of what I'm doing but in trying to connect them with someone who does and just checking back in he's like yeah a couple of people have got back but these bananas waiting list, like you know he's mm. like I kind of like I don't think I'm gonna and it's just it's say if it's six weeks or something and it's like god what, what's, what, what happens in that six weeks because I'm just so sure that there's so many cases where like really bad things happen in those six mm. weeks you know
1: this this is the reality I think and We need to understand. I think actually another thing that I would be massive advocate for is mental health first aid and teaching that in schools Mm. and teaching that in organizations. I know the guys do amazing work and already training people all over the country in those types of questions Mm. and how to pose them and how to actually and when to pose them. Just like you, you know, you said there. I think it's really important that that that's a side of things where people understand how to signpost and how to do the right thing. But I think in terms of waiting lists the other issue you have would say psychology and therapists and your mother will know this your mum can't take an infinite amount of people because it's a really difficult job Mm. no matter how trained they are they still have to deal with serious emotion they have to process that emotion they have to then get therapy themselves to actually have a you know somebody to help them with work through it and you can't go listen I'm just going to get seven or eight of them in today you know you can't because and what happens then is you're not giving the type of therapy people might need and the type of energy you need to bring into a room to help them. Louise talks about this a lot, like she she will only take on a certain amount of people a week for her own mental health, but also to give the very best of the people that sit in front of her and trust her. Mm. So there's those elements, but also there's the elements. There's different types of therapy and types of therapeutic interventions. And I think we need to start educating people on what they look like because it's terrifying for people. They're not sure what type of therapy do I need? I've heard all these different types and there's these different things and we need to cut out that fear and we need to be very clear that when a person comes in the room that we know exactly the type of support and, you know, a good psychologist and psychotherapist will will do that. Mm. And there's I've worked with some incredible people like, I mean, they've heard it all. And I I just think we need to find a way to and it's really hard to get into psychology now. So like the points are really high and i mm. terrifying with that is because I know a lot of people who want to do psychology who'd be very good at it because they've just got this deep human empathy ability to connect and very skilled but they're like I can't afford to do that or I can't I won't get in mm. and I think we need to figure out a way of access for psychology to train because it's a, it's a long it's a long old road like with, for psychology to the training therapy and psychotherapy it's a lot of work a lot of a lot of work and one of the other things I look at is I've chatting to Lynn Ryan about this is how do we create kind of say people who might be from areas where they can work within their community. And uh, she speaks with obviously in Tala. And I was chatting with guys over in Ballymun. I was doing work with them. And how do we train? There was a couple of lads that I met there who had degrees and kind of social care, but they wanted a master's. They want to do psychotherapy, but they're like, I, it's 15. It, you know, how much money to do a master's? It's mm-hmm. expensive. So looking at ways of creating systems and taking down the barriers to get people into this sport into so that we can train people to do this stuff. And um, so Recruitment's a big problem in the HSE. I know that. And they tell they tell us that, but there's only so many years they can keep telling us this. And at the end of the day, me, you, and everyone listening to this pays taxes to people to govern our country. There comes a point where we have to hold them to account, mm. and that might be at a ballot box. But it also has to be throughout the four-year cycle, where you're like, hold on, secure lads. There's only so many times we can hear that we'll learn from our mistakes line. And I think in mental health, it's the Pandora's box that no government is willing to open. Mm. That's my belief. And I think that's not just in Ireland. I think it's, you know, generally across the world. Because you look in America, for example, this week. um, You know. The tragedy in Nashville. I, I, I woke up, read it. I said. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for the wait for it. Yeah, there we go. It's mental health. So the Republicans came out straight away with mental health. Those same Republicans, minus one in the House bill to pass mental health supports for schools, voted against it. every single one of the fuckers except one. Then in Uvalde, the Texas governor straight away blamed mental health, didn't tell you the year before he cut mental health funding by 250 million in the state of Texas. That's what you're dealing with. Mm. You're dealing with you're dealing with people and you're also dealing in America. Unfortunately, I was listening to Sam Harris the other day and he was talking about a lot of these people believe this is where it gets really terrifying in politics who might be evangelists believe that the second coming's coming. So it doesn't matter. This is like this is what you're doing. This this is the level of people governing and using mental health as a scapegoat, while on the same hand, not providing any support systems for people and living in a country where if you don't have health insurance, you're not getting health care anyway. So you know, when you start looking at this and you go back back, let's go back to neoliberal models. <clears throat> That's what you're dealing with. That's what drives inequality and inequity. And I think in, in in mental health. These are the bigger, difficult conversations we have. And when we do go to an election next year, two years time, whenever it is, it could be, could be next week, actually. Mm-hmm. But when we do, these are the questions we need to start asking people on the doorstep. And we got to ask politicians and, and don't get angry at politicians because a lot of them are just the result of the same stigma that I grew up with, they don't really know how to talk about it. Mm. Not because they're bad people, is because they're terrified they might say the wrong thing. So we got to give people room to say the wrong thing too. Yeah. And not crucify people. And I think these are all the different elements of stuff. But I think our systems have to change. And change is really, really difficult. But Ireland is good at We've mm-hmm. We've dr- we've done pretty incredible stuff. We've, dr- you know, first in marriage equality, you know, repeal the eighth was a really sensitive, 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 Uh, issue and we could have fell apart, but we managed to somehow stay together. Yes, there was definitely conflict, but generally as a country, we felt we kept together and you look at stuff like Brexit and what goes on in America where they're they're falling apart. So I think we should be very proud of what we were capable of as a country when it comes to change. But I think now this is probably going to take a certain level of courage and bravery and a certain level of commitment by everybody to figure out how do we change our health systems to to catch people and that's that's a big body of work mm-hmm. nobody's pretending that's easy and yeah. none of this is easy and people say Covid caused it I think Covid just exposed it
0: mm. and it's so and I do want I do want to I do want to roll my bingo machine but I like it. you know it's so funny when you talk about and it's so good to talk about it's so good to hear you speak to it because like I said I don't feel equipped to speak to that those bigger systemic things but like what I do feel equipped to speak to is like and with all that said it's like then when you, when you do, if you are one of those lucky people who does manage to get into a room and, and get to speak to someone and like the privilege of getting to, yeah, someone is supposed to hold that space for whatever, you know, the things going on in you that need to be worked out are. Like, and then it comes down to this really human thing of like, do you kind of get on with the person sitting opposite you? And like, yeah. do, do you connect with them? And do you, like, that's the big thing I always feel, especially when friends are going for the first time. It's like, you know, I always feel like there's so many people who probably went to therapy or counselor or whatever, or someone in school even once and it didn't click. And they are kind of like, yeah, you know what, fuck it. That's not for me. And it's like that mightn't be true. It just might be that they weren't for you.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I went through that. But I mean, I also got frustrated with my therapist, but that was the point. Yeah, you know these are uncomfortable conversations that you've ignored and avoided for 15 or 20 years in my case Mm. so it it, it is uncomfortable so try and decipher the difference between discomfort and whether you don't like somebody this is uncomfortable for me because I'm talking to a stranger about something that I'm really unsure about myself Mm. and something i maybe never said out loud before and but I remember the first time I did that was to my GP though Right, and I purged the poor lad burnt the ear off for nearly an hour and 22 minutes I put my head down and I was like right I did I took a deep breath and God help whoever's in the waiting room because I just <laughs> went and went and went. And I didn't care what he said. I, I was like, and I actually genuinely thought he was going to commit me. Yeah, I honestly, that was in my head. Yeah. I was like, well, this is and he his his line will stay with me till the day I die. He said, Niall, thank you. Now I'm accountable to you and you're accountable to me. And I was like, no, that's what you want a GB to say. Wow. and that's the difference. So. I, I understand not everybody has that experience, but I I I think th- there's GPs out there who really understand this is in a hugely important part of their job and work and they want to help and they I think GPs would really love a better system. Mm. I think GPs would love to be in a position to constantly refer people to good psychology and psychotherapy and know they'll get they'll get that intervention, mm. but they, they don't have that luxury so often and they don't their hands are tied. So th- this when you think about this, You got to think of the entire entire model Mm. and system. You cannot think of like, right, this is the problem. It's it is everything, every link. And that's the body of work that we have to figure out. And hopefully part of my research can contribute to some of it. Mm. And that's my aim is that I can go, right, well, listen, how about we look at education and how we can use that and we stop people getting, you know, we stop, you know, hopefully more people get into point of crisis and when we do that will you fix out this crisis model that you have because it's not fu- it's not functioning properly mm. and the actual the, the period of my study is 1817 when we opened our first asylum to 2023 when that CAMS report came out in January mm. and we all read it and we all go what do you mean they're doing that's what's happening to children <laughs> that has to be the stake in the ground that CAMS report mm. that was shocking and I'd recommend none of you read it because it's too upsetting. Wow. That's what we're dealing with. So, you know, we have to figure this out. Mm. Like, and there's there's too much, too much at stake here. And as I said, it won't be solved by conflict. Mm. And that's what us for life. We've all we've always worked with people in power. Mm. Um, we've always grated and jarred with them, but you don't solve this problem by throwing stones. You just won't.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Hey guys, just to interrupt your personality bingo listening for just a moment to tell you about another phenomenal podcast on the Stuff Podcast Network. This one is Fireside. It's by a friend of Personality Bingo, the amazing Kevin Olihan, who did a wonderful episode as part of our season one. A particularly good episode, an episode I remember, and I think you should listen to Fireside. Fireside is an Irish storytelling podcast where Kevin, who's an amazing actor, performer, singer, poet, writer, he takes a story from Irish mythology or folklore and gives it a fresh twist he discusses the story itself the craft the culture and i think you're gonna love it here's kevin to tell you more fireside is the irish storytelling podcast every week you'll hear tales of mythic irish gods arthurian knights or norse vikings there is folklore from ireland and around the world and even historical legends like brian Boru and graigne Whale. whether from poetry or prose lyric or legend if there is a good story at the heart of it you'll find it here. I'm Kevin C. Olihan, I'm your host and Fireside Bard. With over 150 episodes and rising, there has never been a better time to join us by the Fireside. So, guys, one more time, that is the Fireside Podcast with the amazing Kevin Olihan. Be sure to give it a listen for all your Irish folklore needs and now, back to personality bingo. Mm. Right, let's give it a spin. I'd be like, do you like pineapple and pizza? <laughs> <laughs> uh, number thirty-seven. Do you have it? I
1: don't have thirty-seven. This isn't working at all. But I, I'm definitely not getting this list.
0: <laughs> number thirty-seven. The question is, what is your favorite thing about your parents?
1: I had this. That's a really interesting question because I had this thought yesterday, and I actually was going to put it up, and I, I couldn't word it properly. I said, "Do you know what I would love to get the opportunity to do?" to have partied with my parents when they were 18 <laughs> if I was 18 just to see what they're like and this came out there was a picture of my mum <laughs> she was at a a party in the in i think it was i think it was the 80s but she she looked like like a punk like she looked like you know blondie it was it was such a cool photograph and then it got this uh, There you often go through my parents but they're they were they were bowled as well they yeah. were, they were what we were when we were teenagers and adults so I think the thing I love the most about my parents is they are immensely open-minded people. My dad was in the army. My mom was a music violin teacher. But they gave me so much liberty just to explore whatever it was I wanted to be. There was no, this is what we want you to be. You're going to work in a bank or you're going to do this. right now like, no, whatever the fuck you want, just work hard at it. And, just that mindset that they have has always been there. Mm. They're incredible people, and my entire social conscience and uh, kind of feeling comes from them. Mm. You know, my mom's from Glasgow, and uh, yeah, it's always been something that they brought me up with. They always like things like equality, genuine, not just like oh, you should treat everybody equal. It's like no, you ha- you literally that's your value. That's what you have to do. And mm. If you don't do that you're not you're not living by our family's values that type of stuff it was very very clear to us from an early age so yeah i think that was and i don't mean this blinding kind of liberal i'm i'm they were just you know that that to me was the way they brought us up Mm.
0: and like was that could you appreciate that say when you're 16 and you're meant to hate your parents like
1: Like, I di- yeah, I did because, like, I remember even my mum saying, so my dad was overseas most of my teenage years. Mm. He was in the, the UN, so. But I remember my mum my coming up to me and I was, like, 15 or 16. I know all my ma- ma- mate's parents were like, oh, you're not out drinking. My mum was like, listen, I know you're drinking. I know, you, I know you used to go out and drink. I said, but there's one rule, she said. You, any night you go out drinking, you have to come in to me at the end of the night and tell me how you got on. And that was just her way of stopping me getting... Plastered, mm. and I, I kind of felt that I wasn't rebelling anymore, so I didn't abuse it. Yeah, so I'd, I'd go out and have a beer or two, and that would be it. And I wouldn't I'd be that, be enough for me. And I'd go home and I'd tell my mum, and I was like, Yeah, just chanting to good night, like blah blah blah. And it was that kind of mentality. But I do remember one of the nights literally coming home, and I had a, a, a little bit too much, and I fell asleep at the end of the bed. And she woke up, and there I was like <laughs> covered in like chips and <laughs> garlic sauce, and she was like, Okay, now we get it. But I never. I tended to never abuse because I never felt like I was rebelling against them. Mm. Um, so yeah, I had a, a very incredible and, and very strong kind of mother who had to be because obviously she had five kids and dad was overseas most of the time. Mm. So she was she was a fair fair woman.
0: Yeah. Do, do you have that with, like, with, like, with, say, alcohol and that sort of thing? Like, were you always like that? Because for me, for context, like, I... Uh, like I didn't drink till I was 18 like I, I ke- kept the pledge and all that like yeah. I was real like Old pioneer badge yeah, yeah 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 and I don't drink now but I did for I don't know like 8 years or something and gradually my relationship would have became worse and worse and I was like my life will be better mm-hmm. without this and I know that but like I could also see like that leaning towards excess in my relationship with other things do you know like drink being one food being another there's definitely mm-hmm. others too D- do you have that or is that not one of the things that no,
1: no drink was never I was very wary of alcohol mm. uh, it didn't do good things I, like I, w- I was a teddy bear when I drank I've never been violent or aggressive or anything or I never really got my, my dad said I was too big to be drunk like I mean no one's picking me up kind of thing <laughs> right. so I never abused it uh, really and then I was a professional athlete, so it wasn't really in a position to do much of it anyway. And then it just didn't do good things. It really, really left me in an awful space for for like a period of time. If I abused it, if I went in the Mm. session or went for a couple of nights, just didn't have that luxury. And I mean, if I had IBS, I'd have to watch what I eat. So that's how I used to approach alcohol. So but the thing about saying that is like, I love a beer. I love a glass of wine Mm. and that's kind of it for me now to be honest with you and uh, I don't I don't like being drunk I can't be and I don't like it and actually there's a filter in me that won't let me anyway because I know what will happen so I do this thing where I'll have a few I'll have max maybe two pints or I'll have a couple of glasses of wine that would be it and I do love I do love um, I love like one really good whiskey but I, 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 I just don't have the luxury of abusing alcohol. Mm. But I've never had the need or want it, but I've, I don't know what could happen, but I've never fallen on it or used it. Uh, I did use prescription medication, unfortunately, and self-medicated for years. But I, with alcohol, I've just always had a very respectful relationship with it.
0: Mm. And what aside from having, like, knowing what happens if you do overindulgent and you're like right. I go to a bad place or whatever. Was there was there something else that gave? Because like it sounds like you had that awareness kind of from the get go.
1: Oh yeah, no. I always had that awareness. I just didn't. It just didn't. I hated not having control. Mm. That was. And I don't mean that. I'm I just. That I'm just too big. I, like, I mean, I was six foot six. I was 17, 18 stone when I was 17, 18 years of age. Yeah. You know, and I didn't want to be that sloppy drunk person you know, falling around. And also my dad said something that says, you need to understand the energy you bring into the room. You're, you're you're a big guy, you're intimidating. So you'll end up in, you're messy or sloppy. Some guy will end up bottling you or something. And I was like, I just don't need to do that. I just don't want to be in a position where I'm, and when I was a teenager, there was one or two moments where that happened. I remember when I fell asleep, Uh, I fell asleep outside a nightclub in And I woke up at like seven in the morning, like like it was piss and rain and, I was like what I just blacked out I blacked out I was like never again mm. and I never ever ever blacked out again from right. that was I was never again That like that is not okay it's not normal and um, nothing happened thank God but like my parents were terrified and I came home like in a t-shirt and it's like "So where were you I was like oh I was like just stayed out in the lake. It was like, For God's sake, don't don't be I don't want to be that person. Yeah. And it's just that I just don't wanna I don't think falling asleep and blacking out on the street is what you want to be doing with your life.
0: No, but that's the mad thing about if you do have a problem with drink that like you kind of intellectually know that and you still will play that oh, yeah. again and again. And I've
1: I've I've gone through it with very close friends. Mm. Um and addiction is a you know, I, I in my entire life I've never met anybody with an addiction who wants one. Mm. And I often say re- addiction is a reaction to repressed or internalized pain because we've created a society that doesn't la- let us externalize it, doesn't mm-hmm. let us express it. So, and not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, when you pull the tread on addiction, you you will find that. And uh, I, you know, I ended up uh, kind of a prescription sleeping pill addiction, which was nasty stuff, you know, and nasty stuff. And you rationalize yourself away from it, and you pretend otherwise. And you're like, oh, no, I'm grand, I'm grand, I can do without them and then you find yourself nearly jumping off a train going to Manchester because you've forgot your met your sleeping pills you know that that's not a real st- story yeah yeah i was just, i just got such a f- f- like i couldn't like to me and it like you really would take them and you would like like really strong i'm not talking rescue remedy stuff here like stuff mm. that like you know joyce would fall asleep mm. and uh, uh yeah it was it was it was chaos but that was actually one of the things the gp helped me with he was like we need to get you off these Mm. you know we can't this isn't good like <laughs> I've done them for a few years at that point he needs to get you off these and I was terrified with that actually and he did an incredible job uh, to to wean me off he actually put me on Xanax <laughs> I was like for God's sake <laughs> but he was like no these come down in smaller increments right because the sleeping pills were coming down in 5 milligrams. I was like so you'd go from 10 to 5 he's like no well, at least with the Xanax we can go from point. Five, you know so he goes we'll put you on and it, and it will just soften and, and actually it worked and at that point, I was on a lot of, I was on a high dosage of SSRIs as well, and in time and with therapy, uh, I had said to him, "I want I want to, I, wanna, I don't want to take these anymore," mm. and he helped me with that as well. Mm. So, as I said, I was very lucky to have a brilliant
0: GP. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Right, let's give it a spin. Uh, okay, number. Oh, it's faded. Number 16, do you have it? No. <laughs> no this
1: is... I have a weird-looking 19 that I could sell as a 16, no, I'll... I'll <laughs> no, vote. I'm
0: not buying that. We'd have to put it to VAR. Uh, number 16, can you tell me about a memory that still makes you cringe?
1: Cringe. Um... <laughs> oh, fuck, I hate these questions, because, like, you actually get the somatic response yeah, when you yeah, start yeah. talking about it. Uh, Cringe one. I... I don't I, I don't mean cringe because I was embarrassed as much, but I was actually I remember how utterly terrifying and weird it was and how I was literally not myself was years and years ago we were and this isn't the name job, but this is part of the story, but we were supporting Oasis insane. Slane. Mm. And we did a great gig that day because our, our, the actual production manager for for Oasis is from Mullingar, so he like he gave us the full stage and we had all the full lighting no systems way. that looked like yeah we had we had a field day. Tabby was had us rocking, and after the gig, our manager came in and he was like, "Why?" He was like, "Do you want to support ACDC next week?" And I was like, "No." He was like, "Why?" He says, "We're going to be we're going to be ripped apart. Like we're a pop punk." or I'm not getting into it. Onto it, like, no, no. <laughs> and he said, "Their agent has just said that the support act has pulled out. It was Tin Lizzy had broke his collarbone. The drummer. So will you, will you, uh, will you, will you, will you fill in?' Because, like, you know, you've you know how to play the big stage. You've a crew. Last minute. And I remember Deck was like, if you don't do this gig, I will never talk to you again.' This is ACDC. I was like, lads, we're not getting into us into it into a field with 70,000 meddlers and hard rockers and playing. And, and trust me, I'm a doctor. It's not happening. And basically it is the whole week. I was I vomited every single day. Oh, we got death threats, literally death threats when it was announced. There was a radio, a talk show dedicated to why we were doing it. And people <laughs> ring in and go, oh, what? These guys, why are they getting <laughs> and it? And because ACDC are like this iconic massive band and I was like, I'm not doing it up till the last literally day I was like I'm not doing it i I'm, I'm not and like you you gotta do it and i when I say cringe, it was I couldn't breathe, it was horrendous, and we got to the we got to the gig and it was when I say cringe, when there's seventy thousand people in the field, okay, and you walk out and there's deathly silence <laughs> apart from someone going Prix <laughs> <laughs> it's a certain level of cringe. Like, so I remember walking out, going, like, we <laughs> just keep walking to the other side of the stage and pretend we're not doing this show. And this guy, you know, Deck was like, to the guy who got a prick, was only a young fella. He goes, So, oh, what would you know about ACDC? You're still wanking into socks. <laughs> and I was just like, I and I could sense Deck's strength and the rest of them going, Oh, fuck it, we're, we're doing this fucking show. I don't care. And w- I just said no gaps between tongues. They're like, why because they can't boo us like and it was just sitting. That's what it was yeah. on stage. And actually it was going I, when I say it was going, well, it wasn't going well. They weren't booing us or throwing mm. piss at us or anything, but it wasn't going well. But then the worst thing that could happen was one of the mics broke and you could see the crew running out and i was like, oh, no, there's, go- there's space. We need yeah. to talk. Yeah. So yeah. I started playing beat it by Michael Jackson, on the guitar and Michael Jackson had just died that week. And the entire seventy thousand like it just started going crazy for this. Wow. And then got to the song and like oh fuck, they're gonna expect me to sing it. Like I haven't <laughs> a clue with the words, like I have no yeah. clue with this. And Dex started playing the drums I'm like, oh fuck. <laughs> and so you know, me like literally no words. And sitting there and then like, oh my god, the seventy of them, were like, oh fuck. He's just butchering it. So I just think standing there, it takes a certain level of balls to do it but like i actually just remembered that moment of walking out in a in a field with t- tens of thousands of people and you could have heard the cow moo it was in Down, you would have heard cows mooing and slain. like it was that oh God. so that level but we did it and that's all i can remember is that we did it i went home and slept for a week because i hadn't slept yeah so
0: what, what what's your what's your relationship to like say like Music and writing now, because that's one of my favorite things about the Where's Your Mind podcast. Like, uh, because it's beautifully written. Like the the actual, I've read your book and all that and loved it. But the actual, like, say intros to the podcast are so good. Like they're and like they're really they're really engaging, but they're they're really funny as well. Like, what's your relationship to writing now? Like, do you? I suppose you have the time for it. Oh
1: yeah, Yeah. I I, actually not only the time for it; it's crucial for me. Like, I love it. I love writing. I love writing. I think I write now not for output. Where you go, I've got to write an album, i got to put this out, mm. and I've got to market it, and I've got to PR it. And got to, I, I do it because it just becomes, a, it's a actual a muscle that I use, that I like to use. And writing, like, so I'm a big fan of John Steinbeck. and I read him, like when you, I, I would, I'd love reading his stuff and how he describes, especially nature. Mm. And I just think the script of writing is, it's, it's it's just so lovely like it's a lovely thing to do and to pull people in I think that's where podcasting is so powerful because you can create imagery for people mm. and you know sometimes you do it and there's some there's some episodes just doesn't warrant it but like I, I remember I did an episode with Damien Brown who is a good friend of mine the guy who rode the North Atlantic and I was I was actually when he said he was going to do it I was in Galway at the time it was in Connemara and I was standing just outside Lanan on the sea. And I just started writing this monologue about the vastness of the Atlantic Ocean, like just this this sheer Atlantic, and at this point he was out in the middle of it. I didn't know where he was, like, like we like it was crazy like he shouldn't have done it because he was he should have got off the boat because his partner was pulled off six after t- twelve days. Mm. It was crazy to do what he did, but I remember just standing there t- looking at the vastness and the chaos of the sea, like the the waves and the power of it and all that kind of stuff, and thinking about Damien in the middle of it all, and I wrote this monologue, but it was literally word for word what I wrote while I s- stayed there and I just wrote it on a on, on a piece of paper and then went out and recorded it mm. on the sea so I just thought that type of stuff I loved because like it was it was it wasn't overthought, it wasn't intellectualized it was mm. like like where the fuck are you Damien why are you out there why didn't you get off the boat like look at this place this is chaos and then, then I talked about the relationship Irish people have with the sea mm. and that kind of stuff so I loved that stuff and because um, you embody it then and then sometimes you get it horribly wrong and it just sounds like a uh, self-indulgent wank <laughs> and that's that's just the reality of when you're putting out a podcast every week and in my case in the pandemic I was putting out one, two every day so I was st- 16, 1700 podcasts in two years Yeah. some of them are going to be good some of them are going to be absolute horseshit.
0: yeah but like, but presumably when you're doing it, like the intention is never to write self-indulgent blank. Or, no. Yeah.
1: Well, self, that's the thing about self-indulgence. You, 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 most people don't have the self-awareness to know they're actually doing it. Yeah. And you kind of read back and you're like, oh my God, it sounds a bit like, because the one thing I try to do with the podcast is I, do, I hate speaking from some kind of place of hierarchy. Like I figured this shit all out. I haven't. Mm. Ultimately, what I use the podcast for is to teach people how to critically think and how to subjectively think about their own situations and also let them know that they're not on their own when it comes to the chaos of the mind. And that w- ultimately, if we were all honest with each other, we all have that in us. But the, my favorite line, and it's become the entire driving force behind all my work, and even the the music that I'm doing now, the piano stuff and the mindfulness stuff, is by John Donahue. John uh, who's an Irish poet and philosopher who I think everybody should read his book, Anam Cara. I think it's one of the most important books ever written in Ireland in the world. Now, he's just an incredible author and writer. But he had this saying and I remember hearing it and going, that's everything in one line for me. And he says, there's a place within everybody that's never been wounded. Mm. And Ultimately, what I hope to help people do is try find that place. Mm. No matter how fucked up things get, there's there's something in with everybody that I think if we can allow people access it in some way, um, they'll realize how. And everybody has some kind of power, you know. It mightn't be music, it mightn't be sport, it mightn't be. It might be everybody has a power within them, mm. and I think for me, the best way to access it is through mindfulness because you you cut out the bullshit and the noise of the world the external stuff that really doesn't matter and it takes a bit of time but that place that's never been wounded is is ultimately where you're trying to be and sit with and i i, th- I truthfully believe everybody has it mm. um and people have been hurt and tr- traumatized and and you know st- you know stuff like that and it can make it really difficult to find that place but i think that's where good therapy can help and start teaching people not to carry that shame Mm. and that regret that that might be burdening them down and had nothing to do with them, really. That's that's a body of work. But once again, back to the idea, I have to believe that. Mm. Otherwise, your work gets too difficult and you start because you're exposed to so much difficulty and darkness that like you have to believe that every individual has the ability to come out of it.
0: And like two questions have you ever met someone who's like no oh that's not true for me like there, i don't i whatever that place is i i if it's true i haven't i haven't found it or if like there is someone for instance listening is like i don't know i don't have a clue where that place is like what what do you say to them well, i
1: can't say anything to because i don't know what's going on for them mm-hmm. in their life i have no knowledge of their life and i think that's the context of going into a therapist and understanding things like family dynamics, what maybe have happened to you, what didn't happen to you, what needs weren't met for you. All these different things, it can never be answered. And that's the problem with this stuff is people try and turn it into a BuzzFeed article. Mm. Top five ways to beat anxiety. You know nothing about a person's anxiety or why they have it. Mm. And that's why it's important, the context of the individual. And of course, there's certain things we can all do to kind of take a, a look at ourselves and help ourselves a little bit. But there's certain things that you need support with. And I absolutely hear that loud and clear that people will say that. And um, I said it for years. I truly believe there was there was just there was one acute phase of depression that I went through um, when I was playing rugby. Mm. And to this day, I won't be able to describe to you what it felt like. I have no definition for it. I have no. um, I've never read anything that comes close to describing what it was but the only thing i feel like it was like a total it was a complete quest for feeling anything any kind of feeling and it was that kind of difficulty so i do understand that but the other side of it as well is i i think that's a really important point that you say that i think we've created a little bit in the wellness industry a kind of a reductionist look at the human condition i should do these five things and sure that will be grand mm. nobody knows what anyone's carrying or what they've gone through, or the impact that particular thing had—something that might have had a huge impact on you mightn't have had any impact on me. Yeah. Hmm, but for whatever reason, we're all different personalities. So it's that stuff, and that's the complexity of it. And I think also what I'm trying to do is is try to people try to let people feel that there's a shared consciousness here, that there's other people that feel the way you might feel, and there's other people that can help you find a way. To find that place that's never been wounded and that place that never that's never been wounded might be different for different people. It might just be moments of. Just moments of lightness. Mm. It might, we're not talking fucking care bears and unicorns and doing fucking cartwheels up the meadow and this bright side, you know, we're talking just the ability to pull. Joy from things. Mm. And sometimes, you know, I've gone through the phase where that was difficult. And I am an incredibly optimistic. Um, I I would say largely very happy individual mm. and very connected but I still tr- go through these periods of whatever you want to call it existentialism and all sorts of other shit but sometimes I think it's because I'm exposed to so much of it but yeah I, I, I that's where it comes back to the same thing I always talk about the, the mind being like the back of an 80s television whereas you wouldn't fucking know about it, but uh <laughs> where there's like 400 wires and you don't know where they're plugged in and there's like mm. a half eaten bagel and a potato waffle and stuff. And, <laughs> and you're like, that's what my mind feels like. And, yeah. and like therapy for me was plugging all that shit out and untangling it and then figuring out where I'm going to put this back in. Do you know, do you ever see like it like after it wires all over the place when they're put? That's what it kind of felt like. It was like, right, OK. And my therapist wasn't like, we need to fix you. That was none of that type of conversation. Yeah, it's not about fixing. It's about clarity and understanding and self-awareness and going, right, OK. And that, as I said, the different types of therapy, schema therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, there's Gestalt psychology, there's different forms of interventions. And a good psychotherapist and psychologist will figure out what would be the best for you to 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 look at for whatever may or may not have happened to you in your life.
2: Mm.
0: And like, do you ever think of that? So like th- that idea of like you being like an optimistic, like generally very happy person, do you like, I don't know, some of that work you're speaking to earlier like or the yeah i suppose like with all that like pushing for positive change and i can only imagine like a degree of frustration at how hard it is to achieve that or like kind of anything in that space whether it be in like uh, like a relatively like public person or whatever that thing is do you ever like has there ever been times you're like actually this is detrimental to my happiness and therefore not worth doing yes okay yeah
1: absolutely um and I still struggle with it a little bit. So there's times I go like, God, it, it, like sitting there looking through the history of the Irish psychiatric systems <laughs> going, oh, what the fuck am I doing? Like? Yeah. like, why am I reading here? And so people would say, oh my God, that must be grim. It isn't because we kind of know what happened. Mm. And we knew it was grim. What's, what drives me is the optimism that we can change this. And that's very optimistic. And also what drives me is quite, personal like my nephew I, I look at him every single time I see him and I said not a fucking chance of you growing up in the same systems you know he's 10 now and I'm like you will get what you need and then that emotive driving force behind what we do but it is it's just of course it's fucking grim like it's do you know what the worst part of it is helpless mothers that's the worst part mm. looking at a mother who can't get access to supports for their child and you don't know what to tell them that's hard, mm. and uh, you know I don't want because I like the thing about it is like all I can do is signpost, and all I can do is, you know, I can definitely recommend certain people, but like I don't know if they're going to get in with those. I, it's all that stuff becomes really difficult, and they go, oh "Will you talk to my?" I'm like, "So lads, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist, mm. and I'm not a therapist, and I, 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 I just can't engage there, you know." And I will find you somebody, but then. There be some weeks you could have five, six, seven, eight people you're trying to find, and I'll tell you a, a really harrowing one that happened to me was a couple of years ago. Fuck me! I think about it. Uh, I was in a I was in a, a petrol station coming back from Limerick, and a man and God help him, he just looked like he the world had just hit him too many times. He was so beaten by things, and he'd you know he was. Skin was all he was. He'd said he'd just, he said he just had heart issues and stuff. His daughter, basically, he gave me his daughter' social security number to try and get her help because whatever happened to her medication, she was put on. She had an involuntary movement and she couldn't stop. And she she was her muscles were all fading. From, like, I was like, what the hell, man? Like what the fuck? Like what the fuck? And to be fair, I I I I emailed a very prominent politician with the story and this is this is harrowing and you've got to do something here. And he did. To be fair, mm-hmm. he did. Uh, but the question is, how, how did she end up in this position? Mm-hmm. You know, she was left on medication for too long, not being monitored. And that was many years ago. What was the first recommendation in the fucking cams report in 2023? Kids being left on medication and not monitored. So it's this type of stuff that's harrowing for me because it's very real and you go home and you, you don't you don't leave that at the metro station yeah you yeah. carry that and then you carry the responsibility so that can get a bit difficult but it's getting better now because i have people around that can support and i've built the charity and an organization that we can signpost people properly and mm-hmm. i've got brilliant psychologists that if there is something very serious that i need to help with i can get them access to this person so that type of stuff has helped but yeah but i i i'm i love my work
2: mm.
0: Yeah but like that, like There's obviously Gonna be a personal Cost to that Cause like I don't have to worry about Someone coming up to me At a forecourt Being like And then unloading This harrowing story Like but Like it's that That's a tough Balance to find Between absolutely Wanting to help Everybody that you can But also like There's a degree of like You need to have a boundary So that you can be okay With oh, yeah. yourself And like protect Your relationships And your Cause at the end of the day Like that is That is what's so Sometimes that really gets me In like the society or the culture now and and you kind of yeah and especially maybe the place you see it most is social media and you can see these people who are definitely like really well intentioned but like with a really broad and kind of like sometimes scathing and sometimes like very unkind way of like speaking to issues or like demanding change or even like what you're speaking to with like interacting with politicians and like but not trying to be performatively combative, you know what I mean? And and this sort of thing and just, and and ultimately seeing like that, I don't know, that, like even sometimes reading stuff online and I'm like, it sends my nervous system into like this really heightened state. I'm like, this is like, I don't know, it just feels really unhelpful and kind of the, with the knowledge of like, probably the best thing people can do on an individual level is kind of keep your circle and like Mm. keep your people and I don't know, your partner, your family, your friends, as supported and as listened to as possible
1: yes and and also like people ask me that question you know what com- can we do I mean there is going to be an election and I think we need to be need to ask the right questions I think we need to make it a political issue mm-hmm. we need to make it uh, an election issue and here's the really important point if we if we don't do it now I don't know when we will because Covid has been this really kind of kind of what every call it? What a circuit breaker in, oh okay, like when you really look at COVID now and I'm really honest about it, I think the biggest casualties of COVID have been mental, mm. and when I I don't diminish that, I lost my uncle to COVID. I I unfortunately lost uh, an auntie who who didn't get probably the intervention she needed because of COVID. Mm. So I very real mm. family impact of COVID, but I I also see the waves of what came out of the mental health elements of it. And I don't think we've even began to process it. Mm. So this has to be an election issue, but it has to be an election issue where we actually look at what our solutions here. And you look at the housing issue at the moment with the eviction cri- ban being lifted. The fundamental issue with the eviction ban being lifted is they're not providing any alternative. They're not providing it. OK, we've got to lift this, but we got this in place and it's ready to go. We've been working towards this for the last four months because we knew the eviction ban was coming. So we been lifted. So and it's kind of hold on a fucking second here look like, what's going on here lads these 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 are you can't be myopic like this and i think mental health we got to be the same so there so so and i'm not i don't want to be sensationalist or hyperbolic about it but, you know we are seeing issues here i don't use words like you know there's going to be a huge like There is there is issues here and we've got to address them. But I do think we need systems of care. We need community systems of care. We need early intervention programs. We need real programs. We need therapists and psychologists in schools. You know, Norma Foley announced this uh, big fund that was going to go to schools, for primary schools to provide therapists and counselors there. I met the principals of three schools that very, very day she announced it. And they said that equates to 180 euro a year for our school. So. Yeah, there's kite flying that goes on around yeah. it uh, and there's real numbers when you start crunching them and you realize, oh, no, hold on. sec. So to put a therapist and psychologist in school full time is a huge resource and demand and there's not enough of them anyway. Mm. So we got to think about this. We got to think. And also, I remember Simon Harris, who, you know, I have to be honest, I think Simon's a good guy. I think he, you know, do I agree with a lot, some of his politics? No, I think he's really good intentions and education and third level and uh but when he was, I think he was Minister of Health at the time, I spoke at a thing in a lecture picnic and he talked about. Or was he Minister of Health? He was, I think he was. Yeah. And he was talking about how difficult it is to recruit for the mental health system. So get the recruitment is a big problem. We're trying and we're trying and know that they were. But what I said to him was like, but, but, but who, who wants to work for that system? Mm. Who wants to work for a system that has to tell a suicidal teenage girl that they can't see her for two years? Who wants to work for that system because you're putting their mental health in the fire line. So what you're seeing now is you're seeing psychologists and psychotherapists get out of here and going to places where health systems have little more effective ways of treating people and supporting people. Mm. So we have this, this. It, it's really difficult. No one, no one's, knowing saying this is easy. No way. The housing, it's none of this is easy. But that can't be an excuse. Mm. And I think ultimately this is going to take some seriously fucking brave leaders to to stand up and go, we're gonna, we're gonna do everything within our power, to, to progress this. Not to fi- to progress. Let's re- think of progression first. And what does progression look like to me? Early intervention is definitely one of them. Access to therapeutic intervention is one of them. You know, all these different things: community care, peer support systems. You know, evidence based interventions mm. that we know can work and then we got to look at things like the social I- systems and addiction and other issues like that and you know I think it does look scary I'm talking about it I'm like my god it, it must be intimidating to to anyone in politics to figure out well where do we start here mm. but um, I think there's people willing to help and willing to work with whoever the fuck I don't give a fuck who's in power I don't mm. uh, you know
0: D- do you have a hunch though like in terms of coming up towards another election and all that sort of thing do you have a uh, Places where you can see hope, or, or where maybe people should look in terms of leaders, because if we're saying we sort of know what Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have done because they've done it for the as however long, and then you're saying Sinn Féin's policies don't look massively different, is there anywhere that you can see and you're like that looks like a step in the right direction?
1: I mean, there's there's really good people and mm. individuals you see or orators, who you know, care greatly about what they do and got into politics for all the right reasons. There is like, mm. they're like I think anyone who says otherwise, I think it's start slightly intellectually dishonest to say that. Yeah, I agree. Um, but. Are there political parties? If for like, this is me being a bit like focusing purely on my area, which mm. is looking at health systems, mental health systems, essentially. No not really I don't think there's any that fully understand the complexities of it and and I don't think they, they, they want to f- probably focus on it either because it's such a big thing to focus on um, but that doesn't mean that they don't want to change it mm. I just think it, it's I think there's an underestimation of what has to happen and the resistance to change that's always been there so they call this thing path dependency theory and path dependency theory is we keep doing the same thing even though we know it doesn't work mm-hmm. we keep doing it because it's, it feels safe it's it feels like it's less expensive if you're running and governing a country, if we just keep using the same. End. But actually, really, when you break down a current system, it's it's deeply expensive because we're only operating generally a crisis management center, a crisis intervention. And crisis intervention is hugely economically expensive and even more humanly expensive. So yes if I was if I was consistently thinking of four year cycles I, I'd be like well just keep doing what we're doing mm. but if I was thinking at 25 and then there's things like vision for change and sharing the vision and these policies that we did write around mental health but we didn't implement much of it mm. so we're good at writing policy Yeah, yeah. we are very good at yeah. and those policies <laughs> look very exciting and interesting and I think but very little of them were implemented so that's your that's your issue mm. so from a political point of view I think we, we we've good we're lucky in Ireland as well that we have access to these politicians, you know. But mm. like, there's a lot of conflict now. There's a there there's many issues that they have to to look at in Ireland. You know, they have to look at homelessness. They have to look at health systems. They got to look at you know, the refugee crisis. All these different things. They have a lot to carry. Um, so on one hand, I, I I do have an element of empathy. Mm. A COVID <laughs> shit show, war shit show like cost of living crisis a shit show, a lot to contend with. Mm. So it's not like, oh God, like it's okay, well, well, fuck. (laughs) Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be in politics, but. I was going to ask you. No, no, no. Even like some kind of consultant. No, 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 uh, no. Just just because I think th- it's the system. I, I think I couldn't handle the mm. inability to change things and go, why are we doing this when you know it doesn't work? That would kill me. I yeah. wouldn't be able for that. But I, I as I said, I, I, I also don't want to be the tone, th- the stone thrower here either. And I want to be very clear here. around this area. I'm passionate. I, haven't, I don't really understand. I, like anyone else, I just read read articles and papers around other things like homelessness and mm. try to understand it as much as I can. But I'm not in any way an expert about it. I don't do like Rory is the person who's literally committed his life to it mm. but for me I'm a t- taxpaying citizen with the right to an opinion and like everyone else listening to this and I think when it comes to mental health we can do better mm. and we know what that looks like mm. and it's now up to see some brave leadership and yeah that's it. It's, it does take bravery and courage no matter what people think it's mm-hmm. going to take a big big a big, big heart and, 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 and also collectiveness. That's the other thing that I worry about a little bit is that we've created. The other thing that neoliberalism creates is this real individualistic society where everything's a transaction, mm. even friendships are transactional. it doesn't fit my brand. Ireland Inc. Ireland fucking Inc. <laughs> Listen to this. Listen to the language we're talking about. When our friendships become transactional, what can I get out of this? What's in this for me? We've become neoliberal models. Individuals have become, you know, and obviously all of us. But we, it's sneaking in on us now. You look at like the TikTok kind of world of like, do you want to be fucking rich? Do you? Are you? You not in the gym? Are you? You're sitting in your art like, fuck off for a second, lads. Like I've just done a forty-hour week. Give me a second here till I scratch me hole and have a takeaway or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. this is what I'm talking about. That's the model we're in, and it's so good at its job we don't even know we're in it mm. so that's the kind of stuff we got to look at and do i expect any <laughs> politician to go oh you know let's denounce this model of economics let's no i don't yeah. it's going to be very hard to do that because we rely on I mean, probably 10 multinationals that fund a huge gent in our, our you know our economic uh Ability as a country, so yeah, these are these are things you got to think. This is how big and difficult it is. Mm. But it, it, do you know what it also requires? It really requires a high level of thinking. And maybe not trying to take too big bite of an apple at one time. It's got to like start somewhere. But we got to understand, health is a human right. That has to be your starting point. And when we start looking at health as a human right and a basic need, then we can start building out from there. I think, and that's. I think Ireland can do it. I genuinely think Ireland can do it um, and I just hope there's a will to do it
0: okay this has been great we've done so bad in our bingo do you have oh, time for one more we've, yes. we've hit 60 minutes yeah. let's get one more because I can't more. let you it's go it's my with fucking fault dude I just like literally <laughs> no, this is great. shit talk no it's if like it wasn't interesting I would have interrupted it was great let's go for one more alright here we go 51 do you have it? of course I don't have it <laughs> <laughs> for fuck's sake uh oh okay here you go question 51 what is your relationship to fame
1: oh fuck that's a good one
0: yeah normally I ask this to people who like don't uh, like have fame or you know some degree of like kind of you know m- pretty sizable public I don't
1: I, I honestly I, I where it all changed to me because it didn't exist really being in a band like we weren't we were kind of some people knew us we weren't like a big band or you know we were we were doing pretty well but we weren't you know we weren't recognisable like essentially and the voice changed that mm. over, literally overnight I hadn't a clue how to deal with it not a clue like you're walking in that. this is when people would ask for photographs I'm like, what the fuck is going on here this is crazy mm. and there also felt you're on a prime time TV show on RT that you know there was a sense of ownership over you to a point as well where people were like remember the one of the first weeks people would literally grab you and go, come over here I'm like, oh, it's like D- you don't grab a six foot six guy out and nowhere and like but they were like you're on TV I'm like okay I was like I had to learn very quick mm. that, that this is a side of things that I just wasn't ready for at all I spoke I've spoken a lot about this and it was really enjoyable a real privilege to be able to do it it was an easy job like for fuck's sake you just turned up and pretend you knew it something about singing and but i wasn't ready for the other side of things Mm. in any shape or form and actually ultimately ended up coming in london for much of it because i liked to be there because i don't have a clue who i am yeah and i like that Uh, and there's certain elements of it people but there's certain elements of it like they're good like you you know you it's nice it can be and most people are fucking sound Mm. most people are lovely Mm -hmm. and they you know, and some people aren't in that life. But um, generally 99.9% of people on earth are pretty sound. So it's grand. I just wasn't ready for it. And if I was honest about it, I, I if I had to do it again, I wouldn't do it. Mm. I just wouldn't. And it's not me being, you know, trying to not be appreciated of what I had. It's just it, it suits certain people. Mm. Deaf, some people are really good at. <laughs>
0: do you mean the voice specifically you wouldn't have taken that job as a judge yeah
1: I don't think so I, I wouldn't if I realised what TV does mm. and the difference between the medium of TV and music maybe or even radio or podcasting but TV becomes, it's obviously a very visual thing and yeah. it's a very emotive thing as well because you're judging people like who the fuck was I to judge a singer like I mean I'm hardly Frank Sinatra like Jesus Christ I'm sitting here like judging singers <laughs> like what I used to love was like in the blind editions like this because a tiny little tiny little room yeah. and you'd be sitting there and be sky singing and it, it could be the fucking mother and father literally sitting five feet from you and they're like hit the fucking button i'm like but they're not good they're not very good Yeah, yeah. they're not great like and, and they're sitting there like, no, no, no. and they're like jeez on those times like, i'd be intimidated <laughs> the dad would be like the dirty stink guy and i'd be hitting this red button and i like what the fuck are you hitting the <laughs> button and guys like that kind of stuff, but I, got, I I wasn't comfortable doing that. But I just I think fame is very suitable for certain people. Certain people love it and court it and mm. play it, play it, and they play it well and they're great at it. Mm. Um, and some people aren't, and I'm not great at it. And yeah, and I've ac- I actually made an active decision after the voice. When I finished the voice, I had a, an agent, a TV agent, lovely guy, and he was in he was in um in London, big enough agent, had all these things lined up and I remember and I'm going I don't want to do anything I don't want to do this mm. he's like what do you mean you don't want to do this I was like I actually don't want to do television and he couldn't understand I was like it's just not for me I was like <laughs> he was like what the fuck's wrong with you I did. I, I said I, what I'd love to do is like documentary based stuff and mm. stuff like that but I was like I don't want to do it and he was lovely like he was like okay this is unusual but yeah. I was like yeah I just because he could line me up this well I had to do a like a like I'd never done like a, what, what do you, I don't know what they called screen readings or something I don't know Yeah. or whatever they called and he lined it up and it was a pretty good opportunity I might not have got it but it was a good opportunity and I was like no I don't want to do it
0: can and, you say what it was?
1: Um, it was something similar to The Voice right but it wasn't uh, UK right and I was like no I, I don't want to do this mm. I just don't want to do it and my mum my was like don't you, th- you this isn't you it doesn't suit you yeah so didn't do it and then what, uh, what did I do? I ended up ultimately going back to study.
0: Mm. Yeah, like, because there's a real, like, there is a sort of real, I I don't, I don't I feel like you might balk at this word, but, like, there's a sort of bravery to that. And, like, because one of the, it didn't come up because you were shit, at bingo, but, hmm. we, like, one of the things that, one of the questions on this sheet is what's your relationship to quitting? And, like, I always think that's so, I, I, like, I like I I work as an actor and as a writer so again like it's a tough industry I have loads of friends and you know over say the last 10 years like a lot of people have gone and found different things that they love uh, which is great and I, I'm still in that space but I always have like such admiration for people who are like this doesn't make me happy anymore and I'm going to walk away from it but like it's not an easy no, thing No it's
1: not and it's fearful and I'm, I, I was in a position where I was lucky enough you know I don't have responsibilities or I don't have kids mm. I don't think uh, I don't have a mortgage <laughs> yeah. you know, I was like right, I'm in a position where I can make this call and go this doesn't make me happy I hadn't a fucking clue what would be next I, d- I genuinely didn't really? I was like what, what, what is it next like I just didn't but I was like right I just find this too anxiety inducing mm. that idea of uh, yeah just and and honestly I, I, I never see myself doing it again
0: mm. um, is it fair to say though that that fame that came with that has elevated the potential of what you're doing in this of new space of course yeah yeah
1: yeah a hundred percent like that. it's not me and, and i don't want anyone thinking oh, i'm not good. i was incredibly lucky and most of it was really i was really enjoyable actually mm. and it gave me huge opportunity huge opportunity it opened doors that i would never have got open ever mm. even going back to be able to study and you know that type of stuff and even now going back and taking maybe 4 or 5 years and this huge huge terrifying financial fucking leap I have to make to do a PhD because you you literally can't earn you know you're you're going into a position where you're dedicating you know most people who do it might have a full-time job and they get sponsored by their job to do. you know mm-hmm. that type of stuff so it's terrifying um but it really makes me happy mm. genuinely it's like this is really exciting like mm-hmm. thinking about and also thinking about I have no fucking clue how to do this I have no clue how to do research I've never done a research in my life mm-hmm. I'm like how do I do this stuff he was like you, you gotta go into the National Archives I was like where the fuck's the National <laughs> Archives and it's this n- unknowingness that I like yeah. I like it I like it a lot and I kind of feel right it's terrifying but it's also adrenaline inducing it's like people are like, <laughs> like you're studying it's hard, but I love it and I love knowledge I love learning I love knowing what I don't know but I do have to say there's certain elements of fame that I that that have been very good to me and have helped me a lot. And there's certain elements that the cost benefit back to my economics, the mm. cost benefit analysis of it is definitely the cost that weighed the benefits of it. And that's where the decision came. Right. Do I need to do this? Nope. Am I young enough to make a decision not to do this? I am. And that was it. And I've never done Entertainment or television like that again, mm-hmm. I, I I I won't, mm-hmm. and it's you know people will go well, what if this um, no, nope. it's it's too much work to not love you yeah, gotta love it so um yeah I'm as I said uh, a part of my life is doing what I do with lust for life and setting up my and my advocacy and studies to 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 frame that stuff, and um, but part of my life is also like there has to be an element of stuff that I enjoy immensely and stuff that I'm just having to crack with and I don't take too fucking seriously mm. and there is that but music's part of that I do a lot of production I do a lot of writing for people uh, I do like like huge levels of kind of focus around the podcasts. I mean the podcast is like especially lo- looking at building my American um, audience mm which is a huge body of work as well so you have to you have to work on that so I'm at Lemonada in America and they're an amazing platform that I've loved my favorite podcast on Lemonada so I'm really building that relationship and using the podcast as you know for the first time in my life as a source of of, of income and sustainable income mm. uh, and uh, I've had to work 3 years 4 years to do that and only now am I actually able to go right this is a this is a sustainable source of living That's so great. I can go away and do my studies and yeah focus uh, so I'm delighted with that but yeah, you know, podcasting is a lot of people try it and go, that wasn't as easy as I thought it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they, they stop. So I'm three and, a half, four year, three and a half years doing it now. Yeah. Mm.
0: I was looking for my happy end and we kind of found it. Mm, <laughs> I don't think so. Jeez, um, that, sounded, that sounded a bit. What's happening under the I table? it was in the podcast. <laughs> um, Brady, thanks so much for playing personally bingo. Yeah, to finish, if you want to yeah tell people where they can find the podcast, social media, whatever you want yeah again,
1: Where's My Mind wherever you get your podcasts and if you have kids who want to learn how to meditate I have Nile Breslin's Mindful Moments for Kids if you want to learn it a lot of kids look at ways of figuring out how to deal with their busy, busy minds and if you want to come see the Where's My Mind live podcast it's on 28th of April in 3 Olympia Theatre and I'm interviewing Adam Clayton class you too
0: Bretty thanks so much for playing personally Bingo thanks
1: for having me boys
0: So, guys, that was the amazing Brezzy playing personality bingo. Brezzy, if you're listening, thank you so much for taking the time to do it. It was an amazing chat. You made it so easy, and I so appreciate the time. Guys, before we go any further, a massive shout-out to you for listening. As always, you are the main reason we do this, and I so appreciate it. If you did enjoy, make sure to give it a share, be it Instagram, Twitter, wherever you can. Also, a huge shout-out to the amazing Headstuff Podcast Network for looking after us so well. As always, make sure to check out the other amazing podcasts on the network. To the amazing Megan for looking after her so brilliantly as always Making sure everything sounds phenomenal as it does uh, To the wonderful Connor Nolan for his beautiful artwork And last but certainly not least To my best pal Liam Moore For our amazing theme music Guys we're heading very close to the end of season 2 So tune in next week when Danielle Gallagher Plays Personality Bingo with Tom Moore. This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network.